Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. In today's episode, we give you a really unique perspective on the coronavirus outbreak in China. I am in conversation with Anand Krishnan, who was the Hindu's former Beijing correspondent. And he also worked with India Today and spent about nine years covering China as a journalist. He happened to be in Beijing a few weeks ago on holiday and he is just back with us recently. Thankfully, all safe and sound. So, in the course of our conversation, we hit a few really important points. Firstly, Anand describes what life in Beijing was like after news of the outbreak came out, how people reacted, how the whole city was kind of gripped with fear and shut down. And how there was actually a lot of public anger directed toward the government for their handling of the issue. We also spoke then about the economic cost to China now and the challenge that the Xi Jinping government faces in managing this issue, both domestically and in international perception, and really what happens now going forward. As I said, Anand's is a very unique perspective and we're really happy that he could join us on the podcast today. And here's some of our conversation. Anant, it's good to have you on the podcast and most importantly, it's good to see you uh, safe and healthy. Thank you so um, much, thanks. I know that must have been an eventful experience in Beijing when you were there. So, uh, let's first start by, uh, just tell us a little bit about what things are like over there. Yeah, so uh, I happened to be in Beijing by complete chance uh, on holiday over the Chinese New Year. Um, I landed in Beijing on January 11th. And at that point of time, no one had any inkling of what was happening in Wuhan. Uh, we now know that the first case was diagnosed on December 8th, but for almost 40 days, there was no public information in China about what was going on over the spread of the outbreak. So people were pretty much, uh, when, we, when I was in Beijing uh, in early January, people were pretty much getting ready for the big New Year holiday, going shopping, public gathering, big public gatherings were taking place and no one had any idea. Uh, we now know on January 12th was when the first case in Beijing was actually diagnosed. Although it was only on January 20th that the Chinese government said the first person had tested positive uh, for the coronavirus in Beijing. And that was the same day that President Xi Jinping made his first comments uh, about the outbreak. And that's when this entire mood pretty much changed overnight. Uh, where I was in Beijing was when Xi Jinping went public on Jan 20th. Uh, in the few days leading up to that, more news was coming out from Wuhan that this was no ordinary pneumonia, viral pneumonia. This was something much larger, something much more serious. Yeah. And so uh, I was somewhat in a, of a dilemma uh, whether I should stay on in Beijing or leave. Uh, but it became clear to me that in the week after Xi Jinping's announcement on January 20th, there's such a change in mood uh, in Beijing. I've lived in Beijing for almost nine, ten years, and I've never seen so much anxiety as I did uh, during the week that I was there. Everything pretty much came to a standstill. Uh, even though it was the New Year holiday, things usually slow down, people go back to their hometowns. But this was so striking where there was literally not a car on the street. The few people that were going out were doing daily errands and all of them were wearing masks and you could see the sense of nervousness in small things like the interaction with the grocer. No one wanted to talk, no one wanted to shake hands. 
exchanging a bag of vegetables was done very gingerly keeping distance because there was a real sense of anxiety and panic about what was happening and i think we must i think it's important to also note that i think what's happening in hubei province where wuhan is located and what is happening in the rest of china are two completely different things i think hubei if you look at the data that's coming out it's very clear that hubei is really bearing the brunt yeah of this outbreak it's actually pretty much controlled in the rest of china uh to some degree only because they took this unbelievably uh, at the time shocking decision of quarantining the entire province on january 23rd which is effectively 25 million plus people in lockdown uh, as extreme a measure as it was what it did succeed in doing is kind of limiting the movement of people from hubei to the rest of china which is why the numbers in the last few days have been decreasing outside of hubei even though the numbers are going up in the province itself right and so you know pe- so people knew that this was going on in wuhan um right there is this w- was there ever any kind of perception that the information flow about the outbreak was kind of being contained and that people were given very limited information or did everybody sort of really know what was going on no absolutely which is why it's been strange from my perspective to see for example the who has been praising china throughout Uh, in terms of it being transparent in terms of china being uh, forthcoming with information yeah. a lot of global public health experts have been praising china as well but to me it was such a contrast to what i was reading from chinese people on wechat or chinese journalists covering it where the entire with the big takeaway for them is why weren't we told earlier so it's it's quite striking to me that even though you're having the who praise china if you look at what the chinese media is saying especially the more forthright bold chinese media outlets that have been publishing a lot of strong hard hitting pieces about how the outbreak was was handled they've been extremely critical about what happened in the first 30 to 40 days though of course given the fact that the media in china is ultimately controlled by the government yeah uh, they've been uh, careful they aren't blaming the central government they're entirely blaming the local authorities in Wuhan as well as the provincial authorities in Hubei province uh, and of course we now know on february 13th that the chinese central government sacked a lot of the provincial leadership and i think one reason was because they knew they had to do something to assuage this public anger and there is enormous public anger in china in terms of how it's being handled so much so that i i've seen a lot of chinese professors uh who i know personally compared to they say this is the biggest challenge for the communist party since 1989 in tiananmen uh in terms of wow. in terms of a hit t- that its credibility and legitimacy is facing so i see a contrasting reaction between what the who is saying and what a lot of chinese people are saying in terms of the anger with how the provincial government has handled it which is why the central government in beijing is now going ex- taking extreme measures Uh, and they know that a lot is at, is is at stake for them in terms of ending this sooner rather than later and the longer this goes on they're going to have more difficult uh, questions to answer yeah you mentioned that feeling of uh, public anger also being expressed in the media in your 9 years there um did that really is, is that really something that stood out to you have you not has there not been something like this before in terms of uh, you know generating this kind of public feeling i i have to say i haven't seen anything on this scale the only comparable incident i can think of was when i think it was about 8 years ago uh, you had a high speed train accident in wenzhou in southern china and 40 people died mm. uh, and that was again a time when um, you could see the government kind of allow this valve to release the pressure by allowing chinese media to report on the accident 
uh, to report on corruption uh, in the in the railways and how things were being done uh, and there was widespread anger but this is another level because Wenjo was an accident that angered people but here people are being personally affected in a sense that there's a sense of immediacy about the coronavirus outbreak that you don't have with an accident that takes place and affects a limited number of people somewhere else. Here there's a sense of it doesn't matter if you're in Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou there isn't a single place in China where patients haven't been diagnosed yet so there's a sense of urgency and anxiety because people feel it could be me. Right. Uh, and so the question they're asking is did it have to come to this? Could it have been dealt with earlier? Um, again, we don't quite know. I think it's still early doors and we don't quite know how much of the criticism is justified or not because what was quite interesting was uh, the Wuhan mayor actually came out publicly. Uh, he's now sacked, but he came out publicly and he actually said, even if I did have this information, uh, I didn't have the power to say that this was an outbreak because that comes from higher up, higher up authorities. Okay, so he said that. So that's what he And it's unusual in China for a local level official to actually come out and say publicly, uh, that the central government has responsibility as well. So we don't quite know what, we, we really don't quite know, given the opacity of China's system anyway, uh, what happened and why it happened in the way that it did in the first 30 to 40 days. But uh, but absolutely, I haven't seen anything comparable in my eight, nine years living there in terms of the public anxiety that's in China right now. Yeah, you mentioned that um, the roads were nearly empty. Um, that's that's pretty amazing. I visited Beijing myself a few months back and for a city of that size that's so bustling to sort of come to a standstill like this, uh, that seems amazing. But one related question is that you also mentioned that this happened around the holiday season. Um, holiday season must be a very important economic time for China, for Beijing. Um, what's been the hit there um, economically? And I suppose we can build on that to other aspects too, but just generally in that time frame, what's been the hit economically? I think uh, an interesting point was made to me just a few days ago. I, I was interviewing the head of NIT China uh, for a story uh, for the Hindu in terms of the economic impact. And NIT is an Indian company that has the biggest spread in China because yeah. they are present in several provinces. Uh, they have uh, teaching centers in universities. So, he, so the point that he made to me was uh, something of a mixed blessing that had happened during the Lunar New Year, which is usually 14 days a year when pretty much everyone in China goes home. It doesn't matter what you're doing, you drop everything and go home and you spend the New Year holiday with your family. It's hard to express how important this holiday is. It's the one time that, for example, 250 million migrant workers actually go home and see their children and their families. It's so important for people in China. So the fact that many people were either home already or going home was a mixed blessing uh, in terms of limiting the travel. Uh, to some degree and also the economic impact because January and February are the two slowest months for the Chinese economy okay. because factories go into shutdown. Mm. And so what is pr pretty much happening right now is the return of migrant workers to the factories, to the jobs and cities is now being delayed by so far it's been two weeks. Now we're saying it could be up until March, it could be probably a month. So we're pretty much seeing an extended Lunar New Year holiday is what we're seeing. Um, but at the same time, the economy has taken a hit in terms of some industries which are reliant on the Lunar New Year month. Uh, two industries that come to mind are transport and cinema. It's a big time for movie releases as well. I see. And, uh, the, and the Chinese, and one Chinese uh, media outlet, Caixin, had uh, did a survey of Chinese economists. And their takeaway was a uh, very conservative cost, just the Lunar New Year period. Uh, the, the 
the revenues were something like 50% of what it was in 2019. And so they pegged it at about $75 billion. But of course, the cost is going to be much higher, I think, when you look at the end of 2020, because you're going to have at least one quarter or two quarters of perhaps very little growth in China. Chinese economists are saying maybe GDP will be down by one percentage point, but we know that GDP That's, statistics are a bit... Yeah, sure, uh, sure. We but, don't know how reliable they are. So they're saying it could be 5% growth this year, down from 6% last year. Though some people are saying, given the extent of the shutdown that we're seeing at present, uh, people were supposed to come back to work on February 10th. But I think from all the evidence you see, within cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, uh, it's now, it's been one week. But there's very little movement on the roads. People are being told to work from home as much as they can. So it's going to be very difficult to see. I think the focus right now, understandably, is on fixing this, is on containing the spread of the outbreak. But at the same time, the Chinese government is clearly concerned about the economic impact because you even had uh, reports saying that uh, certain provinces, uh, such as Guangdong and Zhejiang, which are the manufacturing heartland, they were told that uh, apparently a directive came from Xi Jinping, which was take measures, but also don't go to the extreme of hurting the economy too much, given that uh, he flagged um, the economy and social order as two of the biggest risks that they have to deal with, even as they fight uh, the outbreak. So it's a very tricky balancing act for China. If you go all out in terms of bringing people back to work, you're risking a second wave of infections. So it's a tricky balancing act, but I think for now, the focus seems to be very much on containing the, uh, the spread of the epidemic. Yeah, so I think during the SARS outbreak, that was the figure that was projected that it uh, the GDP took a one one percent hit or a, or a one point hit. Right. I think uh, what happened in SARS at that time was I think GDP growth, as you said, I think was a one percentage point hit, and I think in two thousand three it grew by about ten percent. Two thousand four, uh, again about ten percent, uh, but then rebounded in two thousand five. Uh, the sense that everybody has now is this is far bigger than SARS in terms of the cost of the economy. Also, you're dealing with a far bigger uh, Chinese economy. And I think one study estimated the cost of SARS, the world economy, at $40 billion. But I think 17 years later, China is far more integrated with the world. There are far more countries reliant on the Chinese economy for their own growth yeah. uh, than, the, than 17 years ago. So there's no doubt that the impact this year, not just for China, but for the world, this is clearly going to be of a much higher magnitude than what we saw in 2003 and 4 with SARS. Okay. And so it's interesting that earlier you mentioned that um, there was an expert who compared the challenge to Tiananmen Square. You wrote an analysis piece um, last week, which we linked to with this podcast. But it also mentions that uh, China was building up to a few landmark celebrations, celebrating right. the history of the uh, the Communist Party in China. Just talk us through that. How how important were, was this year and the next year going to be in terms of celebrating those milestones? No, right, absolutely. And this was something that was obviously not in the script because uh, everything over the last two, three years has been leading up to 2021, which is when the Communist Party of China marks its 100th year. Yeah. Uh, and that's a huge event. And they've been speaking about it even starting two, three years ago. That's how big it is. And 2022 is when Xi Jinping will finish 10 years uh, in charge of, of the Communist Party as General Secretary. Uh, and by all accounts, he's going to begin his, his third term in 2022. And in, it's very interesting that uh, in the few months leading up to, 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 this, to this outbreak, uh, the focus so much was on, they were so concerned about the one and only thing they were concerned about was a trade war with the US. Uh, to a lesser degree, they were concerned about the protests in Hong Kong that we saw throughout 2019. But 
not, uh, but there was some set of, uh, a certain sense of confidence that it was localized. It was a Hong Kong problem. It hadn't really spilled over into the mainland in any way. Yeah. And there's very little indication that it's going to spill over into the mainland. Uh, so this was, so you had Chinese leaders warn of risks of what they like to call a black, black swans or, and gray rhinos is the phrase that they like. Meaning okay. risks that are un- unexpected and those that are expected. Uh, so, but this was something that completely was not on the script when they're planning for these big events, which is why I think you see so much of anxiety and nervousness. Uh, you had even Xi Jinping saying that this is a, this is going to be a major test of China's governance. Uh, and that's why they're sparing no expense in making sure that they deal with this uh, outbreak in the next month or two. And I think they would be hoping that by the summer, by May or June, they have this under control. And the longer this, the longer this goes on, the harder it's going to be for the Communist Party to say that, listen, we've we've handled this, we have a well-functioning state, we're keeping up our part of the social contract in delivering efficient services to you. So this, so this, so to put it very shortly, a lot hinges on this for the Chinese government, for the Communist Party to get this under control as soon as possible. And for Mr. Xi Jinping himself, uh, this would be the biggest challenge that he's faced so far in his leadership? In my opinion, no doubt that nothing yeah. has come close in terms of testing Xi's leadership. Uh, it's been interesting uh, how the Chinese state media has been positioning Xi Jinping in terms of handling this. Initially, for the first few days, uh, he seemed to be directing things from the background. Uh, in fact, for five, six days during the Chinese Lunar New Year, he wasn't even seen in public uh, on one occasion. Uh, the number two ranked leader in the Chinese uh, Communist Party, who was the premier, Li Keqiang, he was sent to Wuhan and he appeared in Wuhan, visited a supermarket, spoke to ordinary people, wore a mask and was seen in public. So there were some comments on Chinese social media saying, why is Xi not going there himself? Why is Li Keqiang doing that? And one takeaway from that is, well, he doesn't want to be exposed too much. So if this thing does go on uh, in a very protracted way, he doesn't want to be the face of the Chinese government's response uh, to, a, to a very long drawn out crisis. Then I think as questions sort of uh, were kept on being raised, I think he did appear in Beijing, not in Wuhan or Hubei, but he did appear in Beijing a few days ago, mm. visiting a, a local community in Beijing, residential community in Beijing and Ditan Hospital, which is a major hospital in the city as well, and appearing in a mask and getting his temperature checked. So his first public appearance, I think, is a sign that the leadership is really aware uh, that questions are being asked and they have to be seen to be leading right from the very top in dealing with this crisis. Yeah, so just want to expand on that. And it's because I think we know so little here in India about the leadership style um, of politicians like Xi in China. So those kinds of public interactions, is that a very rare occurrence? It, does that not happen usually? And usually they are scripted as well. It's not okay. that he, like for example, Xi Jinping doesn't do press conferences. And mm. I mean, not that we can say much <laughs> that we don't have a prime minister who does yes, frequent press yeah. conferences. But uh, usually the premier who's as the head of the state council or the government is the one that once a year meets the press and he's seen as the guy that, that manages the government and the cabinet, which is why presumably he was sent to Wuhan. But that's in theory. Honestly, there's been such a rupture in Chinese politics since she took over in 2012 that the separation of powers between the general secretary and president and the premier which we saw, for example, with Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, where Wen Jiabao was a very public face of the Chinese government. Yeah. Whether it was during the Sichuan earthquake in 2008, he was a man on the scene. And there was a sense that it was kind of a collective leadership, even though Hu Jintao was number one. There was a general sense of collective responsibility among the Politburo Standing Committee of nine people, as it was back then. But now I think it's clear to everyone that 
model of collective leadership has pretty much all but ended under Xi Jinping. It's she is the face of the Communist Party of China. It is a one-man show. Uh, there's no getting around that fact. Um, so it's a very different China from what it was under Hu Jintao uh, and Wen Jiabao. So the fact of the matter is everything is going to rise and fall with Xi. Successes are going to be attributed to him. Failures are going to be attributed to him as well. Uh, so I think as much as right now the central government is saying that in China generally there's a sense that when these crises happen, usually it's the local government, the local leadership that takes the blame and the central government is kind of insulated from it. And to be honest, this kind of does work because a lot of ordinary Chinese people that you meet, even when you go to the, go to the provinces and travel, there's a widespread sense that yes, the local officials are corrupt, but it's only because the central government doesn't know about it and they actually are good people in Beijing. It's a very widespread prevalent sense in China. Right. I don't, I don't know how much that's going to change with, for example, social media and people being far more clued in than they were before. Can you still make the argument that Beijing doesn't know what's happening in Hubei or Wuhan? I think it's harder and harder to make that case. Uh, but so far, what insulates Xi and, and the central government in Beijing is the sense that, well, it's the provincial authorities that bungled and it's the central government that's coming to the rescue. And that's exactly how they've handled this crisis as well, by firing most of the provincial leadership on February 13th. Right, but you, d you did hint that uh, in terms of the information flow, at least it seems to be, people do seem to be informed in Beijing and in other parts of China about what's happening. No, absolutely. I think I should clarify that. I think it's the first 30, 40 days when no one knew this outbreak right, was happening, right. which is when people felt, uh, people are angry about right now. But after Xi Jinping made his first public statement on January 20th, uh, that's when the central government has pretty much said we know what's happening. So they have to take this head on and they have been putting out information every day uh, in terms of what's been happening. It's a different question how much this information is being believed or not because prevalent. there's always persistent questions about are they discounting the number of figures, uh, whether it's the number of infections or the number of deaths. These questions are always going to happen. But uh, there's no question that it's the first 30, 40 days when, we, when no one even acknowledged that people-to-people -people transmissions were happening. That's the sense that has most people aggrieved. But I think Jan 20th onwards, they've been trying to make an effort to, be, to come to pretty much put out daily updates in terms of what's happening, not just in Wuhan and Hubei, but in every province and every city as well. Right. Um, you mentioned that you know before coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever we call it now, um, the big story involving China on the global stage was the US-China trade war. And I don't, this is how I perceived it at least, is that the US was making a lot of noise. Uh, Donald Trump is that kind of character, but uh, Xi Jinping had this almost like calm kind of, I'm going to wait you out right. type demeanor. Um, how does that, how does this equation change now with the fact that China is going through this with, uh, with the coronavirus outbreak? Um, it, does, has that weakened their hand in some significant way? I think the honest uh, answer is we don't quite know yet because I think uh, I think she and Donald Trump had a phone call a couple of days ago, and uh, one of the things that she said is uh, even though the economy is going to be affected because of the outbreak, they still would be on track to keep up with the purchases that they've assured the U.S. as part of the uh, the Phase One trade deal that they agreed to last year. So, but I think at the same time, U.S. officials have been saying in their media that they would cognize the very, uh, you know, the specific nature of this challenge of dealing with the outbreak that China is coming under uh, when they look at whether or not China is fulfilling its commitments under the trade deal. I think there is a sense that this trade deal was kind of engineered to give Trump 
percent of a win before the elections this year. So uh, frankly, I don't know how concerned or not he's going to be if to what degree China is going to follow through on this because the message that Trump is giving his voters is, listen, I got this trade deal done. Uh, I don't know how far they're going to be in, 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 in actually trying to ensure that China is going to be importing the amounts of uh, what they've committed to under the trade deal. Uh, at the same time, uh, everyone was aware that this is the easy part of it. The second phase, second, third and fourth, whatever, how many other phases, the pending phases you have are going to be much harder because they involve things like technology in terms of things like China opening up its economy, not just buying agricultural products, which, are, which is kind of the low-hanging fruit that they've agreed to. So I think people were anyway skeptical that China was going to agree to harder commitments under subsequent phases of the trade deal, especially when it comes to opening up its economy to American companies. I think it's fair to assume that with the economy going through this huge challenge because of the outbreak, that the chances are even slimmer now than they were a few weeks ago. Okay. And just going forward, supposing now that um, the outbreak is contained in the next few months, say by the summer, as soon as the summer, um, can that be can that be turned around to say that this is evidence of the fact that uh, the Chinese government has a robust system to deal with this, and can this be, can that be fashioned into a victory then for Mr. Xi? No, absolutely. That's what they're banking on, and I, and I think that's uh, one of the things that the Chinese state media has been emphasizing on the last few days is that China is better prepared, a better place than other countries to deal with such an outbreak because of its system of government. And that's something that I think Chinese leaders have publicly said as well, including to uh, when the WHO chief visited Beijing, they're like, we are better prepared because our system of government government gives us strength and capacity, state capacity to deal with these things, for example, by quarantining an entire province. Though yeah. we should add that the jury is out in terms of uh, the effectiveness of that move. But I think that's, that's the message that the state media has been saying uh, and that you can be sure that when they come out of this uh, they would the, the the Chinese government and its and the state media will certainly be emphasizing this aspect that it's only because of Xi Jinping's leadership uh, and and the and the nature of the the strength of the central government in China were, were they able to handle such a such a huge challenge. So they will be trying to fashion this around. But of course, I think the longer it takes, the harder it will be for them to push this narrative. If it's going to be a prolonged months-long period of anxiety and difficulty, uh, not just for people in Wuhan and Hubei, but for China. So it's going to be all the more difficult for them to, to sell their argument. And what is state media reporting now? I did read somewhere that there were some reports that the number about the number of new cases are now being contained, or there are not that many new cases being reported. Is that is that true? So the what the the numbers are saying is, if you look at China outside, barring Hubei province, everywhere else uh, over the last few days, the numbers have been plateauing or coming down. But uh, I think even Chinese uh, health officials have been publicly saying that they frankly don't know the scale of the number of infections in Hubei province. They haven't had the testing kits. Uh, on Feb 13th, there was a huge increase in numbers only because they decided that you could be diagnosed just based on clinical symptoms. You just you didn't need to have a positive test result uh, because the fact was that a lot of people were being denied treatment or were being denied beds in hospitals because they couldn't prove they had the illness. There are numerous instances, numerous stories of people being turned away who clearly had... Uh, who clearly had the virus but were not being able to get treated. So I think one of the reasons why they, they, they announced this huge number of new infections on Feb 13th was to allow more people to get access to treatment. 
Okay. Uh, but I think there is a sense that the numbers are being controlled outside of Hubei province because of the fact that you've had travel restrictions, because of the fact that people aren't going to work. But you, Chinese health officials are publicly saying it's too soon to tell if this is actually nearing a peak because once people come back to work, there's a chance of a second wave of infections. Uh, so it's so I think even Chinese government officials aren't claiming a victory yet, but they're saying they're cautiously optimistic, but it's too soon to tell if they've reached a peak or not. Okay. All right, Anand, this has been really interesting. And as I said, we're glad that you're safe and uh, back here safely. And thank you so much for joining us. Today. Thank you so much. Thank you.